we're going to start in verse 1 of John 3. What we're doing this summer, uh, once again, and I keep repeating this every week, uh, not because I forget, but because we all forget, and I just want to underscore that uh, just like a baby that is not yet born, uh, but is in the gestation period inside uh, its mother, is uh, it's, it's a human, it's a living being, but yet it's not yet um, able to sustain life on its own. It's pre-birth, it's pre-launch, as you will. And that's the period of time that we're in right now at Doxa. We're in that gestation period as God is bringing on people. We're growing physically, and, we're, and he's also growing the internal organs of how we're going to be a church in the future. We're not quite a church yet. We're a church plant. We're like pre-launch. It's like um, like that baby in that intermediary time. And what we're focusing on have been through the summer and are now heading into the fall is building the DNA of who we are and what we're about. So um, the very basic core values of Jesus worship, community, and mission, we spent from June through the end of August talking about those four key values. And I keep saying every week that I don't know exactly what Doxa is going to look like five years from now, but I can tell you we're going to be about Jesus. We're going to be about worship. And that means not just the songs that we sing when we gather together, but that means the way that we live our lives, that God has called us to, he says in Corinthians, whatever you do in word or in deed, what? Do it all for the glory of God. And so all of life is an act of worship, the way I am a employee or an employer, the way I drive down 501 in the middle of 5 o'clock traffic, the way I interact with my family, that becomes not trying to check off, check off a list of right and wrong and do's and don'ts, but it becomes a way that I worship Him because I found Jesus to be of ultimate value. And when you find something of ultimate value, how many people watched a college football game yesterday? And they place value for some reasons people place value in the Gamecocks and Thursday night when they were watching that game and uh, 67 yards passing but yet somehow they beat the mighty Vanderbilt Commodores I'm just saying um, <coughs> sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, they beat the mighty Commodores people responded to the winning score with really with worship because they found value in the Gamecocks and they're worshiping them. Last night, Clemson almost choked away a big game that came through at the end and the Clemson fans that were down in Atlanta, they celebrated. They couldn't help but to celebrate when they won because they find value in Clemson. And when you find ultimate value in something, no matter what that is, it could be something Big. It can be something seemingly worthwhile. It can be something really silly. But whatever it is, when you find ultimate value in something, you give your whole life to it. And we, not only do we give ourselves to it, give all that we have and own to it, but we become like what we worship. And so when you find ultimate value in Jesus, you cannot help but to respond in your whole life in worship. And so the way that we grow as believers is growing in worship. So your sin problem and my sin problem, guys, all of us, let's just be real and honest with, with each other. Like, we're all pretty messed up. We all have a lot of issues. You guys have issues in this room. I, I don't know if you came here knowing that. I hope you did. You have issues. I have issues. 
we're all in the same boat of like serious, serious issues. We have, well, we like to say like weaknesses, but really it's more than just weaknesses. We have true character flaws. We have a sin problem, and all of our sin problems is a worship problem. It's because you and I find value in something other than Jesus Christ. It could be what people think about us or what I think about myself or uh, some, somebody else or possessions or whatever it is that we, we worship those things. They're like little gods that we worship underneath God. And God is a jealous God and he faithfully and lovingly is going to go after those little idols that we allow in our lives and systematically show us what we're worshiping other than him lead us to repentance and lead us to worship Him instead of those things. And so life is a life of repentance and the way we grow as believers is growing as worshipers and that's by growing in repentance and what that allows us to do as we face who we really are and God's revealing who we are is He frees us to live in community with each other because we can be real and that's the only way you can have true community with somebody, right? I mean, you think about your circle of friends. And there's some people that are kind of, they're just kind of out here as friends. And then some people are kind of the next level in. The people that are really close to you, what makes them close friends? It's that they know you better than the other people, right? They've seen you at 7.30 in the morning right when you get up, right? They, they, they have experienced your morning breath. They've experienced your grumpiness before you get that first cup of coffee. They, they've seen you when you're sick. Uh, I used to tell, um, I still do, there's a few um, tests that you can have if, if, you're a, if you're looking for a mate and you're just side to side and you found somebody, if this is the right person. And one of the tests is called the, the, uh, the flu test. And that is, has who you're wanting to marry, have they seen you when you're sick? Have they seen you at your worst? Because that's who you really are. It's not like the dolled up pretty look that you have out for the day. Like that's one part of you, but that's not all of you. That's The real you is when you got snot coming out and your, your eyes are pasted shut because it's leaking and you're, you know, there's this, a slight smell of uh, regurgitation in the air. That's, that's another real part of who you are. And your, your real friends, the people that know you best, are the people that know that part of you. The only thing that allows us to take every mask off and to be absolutely real with each other is the gospel. As it strips away all the little idols that we worship in regards to what other people think about us and what I think about myself. It allows me to be real and fair and raw allows you to be real and raw with me. And that's what builds true, deep communities. Remember, I don't know if you were here, but when we were talking through the value of community earlier in the summer, we talked about the, the biblical word, it's a Greek word called koinonia, and it means a deep sharing of life together. And the only way that happens is through the gospel. And then last week, we spent uh, three or four weeks on and that is how God has given us a mission. Jesus gave us a mission. It's what he dealt with before he left for heaven. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. We don't get to make up what the mission is. If any church makes up a new mission, it, you're getting, I mean, you're just making it a little bit too complicated. 
Jesus already gave us the mission that we're supposed to be doing. And that's making disciples. And so we should be, we should look like a community living on mission together. So we're heading now into not just talking about our core four values, we're going to talk about our mission. And our mission is to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. That's what Doxa is about. That's the reason that we exist. And so what we're going to talk about over the next coming weeks is what is a disciple? If the purpose, if our mission is to make disciples, what does that look like? What does that entail? And so the first thing, the first step to becoming a disciple is what we're going to look at tonight in John 3, verse 1 through verse 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher. So Nicodemus was a ruler. He was a member of the Pharisees. He was a powerful man. We think it's possibly that he might have been a, a very wealthy man. He comes to Jesus in the night. Jesus is starting to become famous. Jesus is the, the kind of hottest thing going on in uh, in Israel right now. He's really starting to catch catch fire. He like His Twitter account is starting to blow up at this point. He, he's, he's getting a whole lot of likes on Facebook. Like People are starting to really hear about him. He's going viral, if you will. And it's getting everybody's attention. It's making some of the religious leaders very uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with him. He's, he's not jiving by their rules. He's not playing by their rules. But so this man who's very powerful, very educated, and perhaps wealthy, we think, comes and visits Jesus in the night. It's just, and it's, by the way, it's kind of interesting that he came to Jesus in the night. He didn't come when everybody saw him walking down the street and heading to Jesus' house or the hotel he was staying at or the friend's house there was like, that he was hanging out with that, that week. He comes in the night. He doesn't tell us why, but, you know, possibly he didn't really want anybody to know what was a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which is a pretty big deal that he, a leader, a ruler, a Pharisee, recognized that Jesus was a teacher. It was a, a, it was a title of respect that you gave to a teacher. And for him to give that to Jesus is, is a pretty big deal. Rabbi, he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. So he recognizes right off the bat that Jesus, there's something different about Jesus, right? Like, this isn't just your average televangelist. This isn't some guy trying to draw, draw a crowd or build up a, a big pyramid scheme underneath him so he can make a lot of money. There's something different about Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus had been making a big stir. He was going viral because he was doing a lot of cool, amazing things. He was like giving people back their sight. He was healing people who were sick. He was, he was casting demons out of people who had been crazy for years. Like literally crazy for years. And he cast the demon out and all of a sudden they're a normal human being. It's a pretty big deal that's going on. It's, it's getting 
a lot of attention. He said, and he says, I recognize that you must speak from God because nobody can do these things unless God is with him. And then Jesus answered him funny. This is, this is an interesting and frustrating thing about Jesus. If you ever read and study the Gospels, the stories, the four books about the life of Jesus, um, it would be incredibly frustrating to be around Jesus. It really would. Because he never, he never answers the question you ask him. He always answers another question. And he often answers it with a and he often answers it with another question. And, and he, he paints you in a corner that you don't see coming. And he says things that you don't expect him to say, like what he's getting ready to say right now. So a guy comes, this is like, you know, I had a couple of people come up to me last week. I had some new people last week, and a couple of people came up to me and said, you know, this is really cool. I really enjoyed it here tonight. And the thing that we say, right, is, oh, I'm glad you, did, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope you felt at home and... You know, like that's a really cool thing. Like I want to, I want to, I want to feed that, right? I want you to feel really comfortable. I want you to come back again, right? I mean, and a normal preacher, I'm not saying me, but a normal preacher is thinking, I want you to come back again and give me some money because you're a wealthy, important man. And frankly, I'm trying to start this church or Jesus is trying to start his ministry and it really wouldn't hurt to have a very prominent wealthy man come and be a part of his organization. He's going to put some money in the organization, and he's going to give some chutzpah to the organization, right? Because he's, he's an important, recognized leader in society. And what Jesus answered back to him is so frustrating. Jesus, that's not the answer you're supposed to give to an important man who come to you in the middle of the night and is being honest with you. It says, I believe that you came from God. Jesus answered him, verse 3, truly, truly, Anytime you see Jesus put two truths together, it's going to be very confusing or very, very confrontational. Like, it's, it's, it's not going to be an easy thing to stomach. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can, or born above, from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Isn't that kind of a weird and frustrating thing to reply to Nicodemus with? We, I, I, believe you, I believe that you've come from God. And Jesus' answer was, you have to be born again. <laughs> I mean, he, he did, he's answering a question that Nicodemus didn't even ask him. What is going on? Well, Jesus is saying, frankly, you don't really understand what's going on. You think that you are confirming that, I'm, that I've come from God because you're recognizing that the signs that I'm doing are God, are God at work. But you, you can't, you don't have the faculties. You don't have the wherewithal or the ability to judge whether I'm from God or not because you are spiritually dead. Which, by the way, is a frustrating answer to give to somebody who just gave you a compliment. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you think you can see what God is doing here, but you aren't seeing it. 
you're just seeing the physical, uh, the physical outpouring of the kingdom of God being here. You're seeing the person who was blind, they can see now. The person who was lame, they can walk now. But you aren't, you can't, you are spiritually dead inside. And you have to be born anew in order to be able to apprehend what is going on. And then Nicodemus, this well-read, well-educated, important man, really answers in a way that we can tell he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. I think he's being a little bit sarcastic. Uh, a lot of commentators don't really, they, they, they view it all different ways of what he's saying. But I think he's actually just being just a little bit sarcastic. So he comes to Jesus, this important rabbi who's becoming very popular. he got a big following going on and says, I believe you come from God. Jesus gives him this answer about how you have to be born anew, born again, or born from above, the wording, the Greek word there is. And so Nicodemus answers um, in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, this is this is crazy talk. That's really what he's saying. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you. Again, that truly, truly. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that would be a blow to Nicodemus. That would be utter poppycock to him because your right standing with God was based upon what family you were born into. That you happened to be born into a family that was descended from Abraham meant that you were on the right, on the right team. And then, being on the right team, if you played by all the rules, if you kept all the law and all the rules, and you were down with everything, you, you kept every single, single rule, every jot and tittle of what God said, then you're going to be okay. But Jesus says, that's not the case. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So let me ask you guys. Jesus, Jesus told Nicodemus this year, Jesus did, Nicodemus did not understand what he was saying. Later on, he did understand because we know that he was with Jesus on Jesus' side of the crucifixion. What do you think Jesus is saying? This is not a rhetorical question. This is an actual question. Yes? Uh, him basically saying, you don't know where I come from. You don't know where I go to. What is Jesus saying? Why does he answer him with the, with the phrase, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus fancying it as Jesus and he is from God. Uh, he has this intellectual you know, sense of what's going on. But Jesus is truly saying it's up to the Father you know, you must be born again. What else is Jesus saying there? Why would you have a need to be born anew? Slash is screwed up? Absolutely. So tease that out. What, what, do we, what do we mean by that? pointing to the fact that we as humans, no matter whether, no matter who your mom and dad is, no matter what your background is, no matter how good a person or bad a person you are, that you and I are both in, apart from any, apart from God, we are in a hopeless condition. We're in a hopeless condition. First of all, we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead. Paul says what we are that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead in them. That, that, that we were created, of course, in the garden with great purpose. And, and we were created good. But yet, in the fall, in Adam's sin, it plunged all of humanity into deadness and darkness and separation. And we are born... Physically, but we are born dead. I mean, just think about that. That apart from Jesus, you and I were or are, are dead. So he's saying, you can't even see what I'm doing. You can't see what I'm about because you're spiritually dead, first of all. The second thing, when you talk about our hopeless condition, is he's, he's talking about the fact that we are Morally selfish and rebellious. We are morally selfish and rebellious. That by nature, that we are born sinful. We are sinful by nature and we're sinful by choice. That you, that you are born with a proclivity. You know, some people are born with certain, like, natural abilities, right? It's like some kids are born athletic. And from the, seems like from the get-go, they're jumping and running and they're flipping and they you don't have to tell them you're athletic. They just it's just it's just ingrained inside them. Some kids are born like uh, was it how old was Beethoven when he penned his first piece of music? Wasn't he like Yeah, like seven years old? Like how does that happen? You don't teach that. He was just born with that ability. He was musical by nature and he was musical by choice. I am not musical both by nature and not musical by choice. Right? So we are all morally selfish and rebellious by nature 
and by choice. It's just who we are. We are looking out for ourselves. And the third thing he's talking about when he's talking about our hopeless condition, he's saying we are all legally guilty before God's law and under God's wrath. That apart from God breathing life into us and causing us to be born again, then we are left to our selfishness, our rebellion. We're left under the rightful wrath of God, and we are spiritually dead. That's a pretty hopeless condition. And he's saying what you need is you don't need to uh, become a religious convert. You don't need to believe some new things. You don't need to sign your name on a line and transfer your membership from one church to the other church or from one religion to the other religion. You need to be a new person. You don't need to change your actions and your character. You need to change who you are at the very basis of who you are. I mean, it's hard to be much more different I mean, than being dead, right? I mean, that's you're dead. I, mean, I don't know what else to say. It's just, you're, I'm sorry, I'm tripping all over myself. I'm just thinking that how do you describe deadness? It's, a, it's deadness. You're dead. You're dead. You, 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 are, you are not cognizant of all of what, of how wonderful and beautiful and glorious God is. You cannot, will not, do not see the beauty of Jesus Christ. You don't see the joy in loving Him and serving Him and living a life of life of worship for Him. It's not there. You cannot, will not, do not see it. You are spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. And therefore, apart from God doing something to you, you cannot be alive. You cannot make yourself alive. Something has to happen in order to make you alive, right? You've got to see The Princess Bride. It's a great movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you have not, you should go home tonight and watch it. You absolutely should. It's a great movie. And this is part where the, um, the great hero in the movie, he, he, gets, he gets killed. And they, it does. And so they take him to the magician's house, which is played by Billy Crystal. Brilliantly, And Billy Crystal, when they show up, they connive to get him in there. And he does this little test, and he figures out that he's not dead, he's just mostly dead. Right? He's, he's not all the way dead, he's mostly dead. There's still something in there. So there's still... Intense. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so, so there's still some hope. They just have to, to re-energize him, basically. But... There's, there's two parts of that. One is, you and I, in our sins and trespasses, are not mostly dead. We are all the way dead. But here's the thing. Even in him being mostly dead, what was his name? It was the Dread Pirate Robinson. Wesley. Hmm? Wesley. Wesley. Prince, uh, Wesley. The thing about Wesley is... Or Buttercup. Buttercup was the princess, right? Oh, what, yeah. what Wesley had, had no hope in himself. He could not, even though he was only mostly dead, he could not re-energize himself. He had to have his buddies take him to the magician's house, and the magician had to re-energize him and resuscitate him. He could not do it to himself, and that's the state that you 
and I are in, in, excuse me, our trespasses and sin. This is why God said in the Old Testament, this is the great promise in Ezekiel chapter 36. When he was talking to the, uh, to the Israelites, and this is why Jesus later on in this chapter, he, he gets on um, Nicodemus and says, why are you not understanding this? You, as a teacher, should know that you need to be born again. And this is why, with this passage, and it's not just this passage, it's others. For God makes this promise. In verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Listen to, listen to who is doing what. Right? Look at listen to who who is the noun and who's the and, and what is what is being done. What who is the verb being done to? Okay. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Who is doing the action in those sentences? God is doing the actions. Who is the recipient of the actions God is doing? We are. And what is he doing? What is he describing? He's going to cleanse us. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to put a new spirit within us. Basically, he's saying, I am going to cause you to be born again. Born anew. Born from above. That's what happens at the new birth. Look at, um, look at 1 Peter going to give you a few more examples of this. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. And then in verse 23. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, listen to that wording, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power are being guarded. So how are you even being guarded in your faith? By God's power. Look at verse 
23 of that same chapter. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. This is that um, verse I was alluding to earlier. And you were dead in the trespasses and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, best word in that whole chapter, but... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Jesus. What happens in the new birth is not simply getting a new religion, but it's getting a new life. The first step to, be, to becoming a disciple is not filling out a card or walking down an aisle or praying a prayer. The first step of becoming a disciple is not deciding, hey, I think the Bible might be the Word of God or Jesus actually might be the Son of God. The first step in becoming a disciple is becoming a new creation. It's having new life birthed in your heart where once you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. What happens in the new birth is not getting a new religion, but getting a new life. And what happens in the new birth is not believing that's, that something supernatural happened in Jesus. It's not believing that God, that Jesus was the Son of God, and that like, you have to believe that, but it's not merely believing that. There are people that believe Jesus is the Son of God, and they are not a Christian. They're not a disciple, because it's not simply believing that God did something supernatural in Jesus. It's experiencing something supernatural in your life. Is God awakening your heart and transferring you from that kingdom of darkness you were once in to the kingdom of light? So, if that is the way you become a disciple, now, we'll get into that. If that's the way that you become a disciple, there are certain, that's certain implications to what we do as a community of believers. And the first thing I've already alluded to, the first thing it means is I'm not simply, we aren't simply trying to get people to agree some, to some doctrines. So when we, when I stand up here and talk to you guys, or Dale gets up here to talk to you guys, let me call you Dale. 
Um, when Stale Dale gets up here to talk to you guys, or you guys sit down in your community group and study from the scripture together, or whether you are talking with your neighbor and sharing the gospel to them, or your co-workers, that what our aim is, is we aren't simply trying to convince people that the propositional truth in the Bible is true. Like, that's a part of it, but that's not the story. Just because somebody agrees, like, hey, I think that's true, does not mean that they are a disciple. That doesn't mean we have made a disciple. Because somebody walks down the front and signs a card, doesn't mean we've made a disciple. And someone becomes a disciple only when they become a believer. And that's when God breathes life into their heart and causes them to be able to have faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and to repent of their sins and turn towards Him and trust Him as their Savior. And that can only happen because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins if God breathes on their heart. Number two, it means that we aren't, aren't simply trying to get people to live according to a new moral standard. Right? So our aim as a church, our aim as believers who are living life on mission, isn't trying to get people to stop living life badly and start living a good life. Frankly, your problem, any person that you are encountering, their problem, they do not know Jesus. The problem is not that they're doing bad things. That's not the problem. The problem is they are spiritually dead. They, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. So, what good does it do? Have you guys seen, um, what is it, Weekend at Bernie's? Where they, the guy's dead, and they drag, Weekend at Bernie's 2. That was horrendous. No, you don't have to waste your time. That is kind of funny, but I haven't seen it in a long time. I'm sure it's very dated. Um, but Bernie's dead. And they spend the whole weekend trying to convince people that he's still alive. And so they're dragging his dead body around all over the place and putting him in different scenarios, trying to convince people Bernie's still alive. You know what? That didn't help Bernie at all. Bernie's dead. It doesn't matter to him if you put him in a sombrero or you put him in some cool shades, if you set him out and he's sunning out on the beach, or he's set him up at the at the piano or what I can't remember all the stuff they did. It doesn't matter if you what scenario you put a dead body in, they're still dead as a doornail. And if you take somebody who is dead in their trespasses and sins, and you try to fix them up and have them act nicer and be nicer and stop doing this and start doing this, like it might be better for them not to be binge drinking or beating their, uh, certainly better, not to do either of those things or beat their wife, but it doesn't solve the core problem that they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And so we want people to be able to come and hang out with us and being really messed up people, we want them to be able to belong to us before they believe because we don't expect them to clean up 
or we're not even trying to get them to clean up. We want them, we want God to breathe upon their hearts and cause them to be alive. We want them to give them a new heart and cleanse them with His water so they'll be fresh and new and forgiven. And that His Spirit comes to reside inside them. That's our goal. Not for them to start living, acting differently. In fact, if we had, if we were able to build a large church of a large group of people who are doing all the right things but we're all spiritually dead, it is actually doing more harm than it is doing good. Because people come into our midst, feel they have to clean up, they get cleaned up, and then they think they're a Christian. Because I can't tell you, I heard today, some people at a church locally describing why they're getting baptized, and they were talking about they, they want to live a better life. I don't know what's going on in their hearts, but that's not the reason that you get baptized or you come and make a decision for Christ because I want to leave a bad life and start living a better life. The reason that somebody is born again is because God has awakened them to his, the beauty, the wonder, and the glory that is found in Jesus Christ and has shown them their sinful and hopeless state apart from him. Number three. So number one, it means that we're not simply trying to get people to agree to some doctrines. It doesn't mean that we're, it means that we're not trying to get people to live according to a new moral standard. And number three, it means that we aren't trying to recruit people to an organization or to make a sale. You know, if you go to, uh, not all car, car dealers are like this, and car dealers aren't the only ones, but you know, there's some places you go into and, and they just, everything is built around getting you to sign the dotted line. That's all they care about. They want to make the deal. And what do they have to tell you or do or fudge the numbers or move things around a little bit? They'll do whatever they can in order just to get you to sign the dotted line. Because once you sign the dotted line, you're obligated to pay them the money for this car that you have just been hoodwinked into. Or you think you've you know, got a great, you never get a great deal. Let's just be honest with that. You think you work it, you get a great deal. You might get a better one otherwise, but they're getting the good deal, which is fine. They're in the business of doing that. But that, the whole, the whole experience is built around getting you to sign the bottom, bottom line. And that's not what we're doing. You ever been to a church service where the whole service was built around building the whole service to a crescendo? So there might be some drama or some videos. There's nothing wrong with drama or videos. But there's drama or videos and then the music and then the preacher and he ends with a story. This heart-wrenching story. It's like a lifetime movie. And all the, everybody's crying and then, the, then they start playing the music in the background. And then everybody starts crying more. And the whole deal is to get you to sign the bottom line to walk forward that day or to shake somebody's hand or to fill out the card or to give the money or whatever the purpose of that, of that morning is, is to get you to sign the bottom line. That's an emotional reaction. And that's what not, not what we're about. We're not trying to make a sales pitch and get somebody to sign the, the dotted line and, just, and say, I'm going to be a believer today or I'm going to be a member of DOXA and then, like, we got you. We got you on the roll now. You gotta be a part of it, right? You're a doxaite. We've we we've closed the deal. That's not what we're about. Because that's not what Jesus is about, making disciples. 
first step of somebody becoming a disciple is going from deadness to life. Number four, it means that, that we can't, even though our, Jesus told us, go make disciples, is exactly what he said. And so we take that as our mission statement. We say we are about docs that exist to make disciples, but really, we can't make disciples in any decisive sense. That you and I cannot convince somebody to be a Christian. It's not about moving your membership from one column to the other column. It's not about simply thinking, I think that might be true. It's about God breathing upon their soul and giving life where there was not life so what does that mean if, if we can't make that happen? Well, it means that we can provide lots of means that God uses. We proclaim the gospel. We worship him. We provide community for people to belong, to be a part of before they believe. We share the word with each other. We pray for each other. And we, but the biggest thing is what we did as a church Tuesday night when we gathered in our house and we prayed. Pray that God would stretch out his hand and move and cause people to go from deadness to life. Number five, it means that God must awaken people or they will never be a disciple no matter what their life looks like. So because somebody comes in, and joins us as a part of us, and they live a good life, that does not mean that they are a disciple. There are a lot of people that are a lot better people than I am, and they are not believers. How good you are, how nice you are, does not mean that you are ahead of me, or that I'm ahead of you, because I'm nicer, I got my stuff together more. The only thing that gives me a right standing for God is the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And the fact that I have put my faith in that, that turned from my sin. And that can only happen if what? If God has breathed upon my heart and given life there where there was no life before. And so we're not going to judge whether people are further along their spiritual walk simply because they're a nice person or they look like they have it together. We're not going to assume that somebody's a disciple simply because they come and hang out with us and they're really nice people that have it together. We're going to hold high that God has to breathe upon your heart and cause there to be life that there was not life before in order for you to be a disciple. We are not doing people any any good, we're not doing them any favors if they come and are a part of us and we give them a false hope because they believe the right things and live a pretty good life. We are looking for God changing our hearts. And that's difficult to judge. It's really impossible for us to judge decisively. Number six. 
It means that every time someone becomes a Christian, a miracle has happened. A true miracle has happened. A dead person has been made alive. If we had somebody in this room that died tonight, like literally died, and then tomorrow one of you prayed for them and they were, they came back to life, that would be an amazing miracle. And we would, we would celebrate that. That would be startling. But it is no less startling. In fact, it is more startling that somebody who is spiritually dead, a rebel against God, all of a sudden hears the gospel at a gathering like this, at a community group, or you sitting across the table from them at lunch, just for some reason, maybe they've heard it five, six million times before. Maybe they've never heard it. Maybe they've never heard it clearly communicated. But for some reason, at that moment, it's like the penny drops and you see it. They have gone from death to life. That is a miracle of astounding proportions. It's the kind of miracle that when Paul describes it throughout the New Testament, he says it's the kind of thing that angels desire to look into. He says that all of the saints that came before Jesus, the great saints, Abraham, Moses, David, all the way down the line, they were looking ahead. They were trying to see what God was going to do, but they just couldn't see it. Angels were flabbergasted by it, that a man who was sinful and dead could be Born anew from above into God's family. It is a miracle. Number seven, we're almost done. It means that making disciples means being a part of watching a true miracle happen. Think about that. If God has given you and me the mission of making disciples, and he has given us together the mission of making disciples, and he's given and it's something that we get to participate in. We have to proclaim the gospel. We have to share the gospel. We have to, there's a lot of work that's involved in it, but we can't decisively make it happen. God has to breathe upon their soul, and when he does, it's a miracle. When, if we believe that that's what's going on, then he has called us to be a part of watching him do amazing, flabbergasting, incredulous, incredible. Incredible miracles. We should be incredulous and watching it and seeing it. Incredible, amazing miracle. He's called us to be a part of and to observe Him doing miracles. And here's the thing He loves to do it. He loves to do it. It's kind of the business that He's in. He's in the business of taking dead people. Breathing upon their hearts in some mysterious, spiritual, supernatural, miraculous way, causing them to be born. And then lastly, 
not really last, so there were a couple others but that I was thinking about, but lastly, tonight. It means that God gets all the glory every time somebody puts their faith in Jesus and repents of their sin. God gets all the glory. If they are dead, and you and I don't, we're not, we're not a, I can't remember the magician's name, and, and uh, we're, not, we're not Billy Crystal, right? We're not Billy Crystal that can bring them back to life. We don't have that magical power and ability. Only Jesus has that power. And if that's true, then you and I don't get the credit, we don't get the glory when it happens, and you don't get the credit. Dale, when you became a believer, you don't get the credit for, like, being smart enough one day to really see, hey, I figured this thing out. I must be a little bit smarter than everybody else who has not yet figured it out. No, because it was God, because you were dead, and you cannot bring yourself to life, and we cannot bring you back to life. When God does it, he gets all the glory. And so community of believers that are on mission, watching this miracle happen, think about that. Acts said day by day, every day, people were coming, believers. They were moving from deadness to life. Think about what kind of worshipful, celebrating community that would be. If day by day, we were observing God take people who were dead in their trespasses and sin under the rightful wrath of God and causing them to have a new heart, to be cleansed from their sin, and to breathe His Spirit into their soul so they become sons and daughters of God. That would be an incredibly worshipful community as we see the amazing stories of how God brought them from dead, deadness to life. And so when we say we want to be about making disciples, we joyfully worship Jesus with our whole lives, that's the first thing we mean by that. We mean we are about being a part of seeing God do amazing miracles. There's a lot of work that, it, that involves, there's a lot of uncomfortability that it may involve, or certainly will involve. There's a certain amount of suffering that involves. But it's worth it. It's worth giving your life to a mission like that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship that God who brought you and me from deadness to life. We're going to worship that God who is right now about, in the Grand Strand area, taking people from the kingdom of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his dear son. Father, we thank you. We worship you for your grace. We worship you for your mercy that you have poured out upon us. We worship you that you took us who were dead and you made us alive in Jesus Christ through his finished work on our behalf. And so we want to worship you tonight for that, and I, I pray that you would help us individually, and you would help us together as a community devote ourselves to that kind
kind of life. To devote ourselves to watching you do the amazing, incredible miracle of calling people to yourself and making them your children. In the name of Jesus, we pray.